So a lot of my clients, they would get so upset when it became clear that they could not rely on their elementary school style of rules and selves. Being polite was not necessarily going to help them cross that finish line. You may find out that there are parts of you that are still attached to core negative beliefs, that it's not safe to be successful. And when you listen to those parts, they all have wisdom. You're listening to Find the Good News, Episode 98, The Character Lines, a Beacon Series conversation featuring Bridget Dingle Gaspard, author of The Final Eighth, Enlist Your Inner Selves to Accomplish Your Goals by New World Library. Find the Good News is produced by Parker Brand Creative Services, a branding agency that thinks sideways, pushes forward, and gets your brand up. See what else we do at parkerbrandup.com. If you've been listening to Find the Good News for any length of time, then you've probably picked up on my personal interest in exploring the landscape of the human mind and heart. As Find the Good News makes its way toward 100 episodes, it's clear to me that the good work this show might be doing through the vehicle of intimate listening and sharing could be leading others to ask that most profound question that I've been asking most of my life. Who am I, really? In this episode, I visit with Bridget Dingle Gaspard, author of the new book, The Final Eighth, Enlist Your Inner Selves to Accomplish Your Goals. Bridget helps her clients discover and engage their inner world through the voice dialogue method, which I am finding to be an indispensable holistic tool. What I discovered in reading Bridget's new book is that there were very clear and strong voices, characters, or aspects of myself that I'd never really acknowledged. Many of these characters embody some of my best and worst characteristics, adopting them as their full identity. Some are a great source of strength, and many clearly developed out of personal pain, fear, and guilt. While they may have served me well during times of hardship or strife, their loud voices have steered me away from many joys. In this visit with Bridget, she encourages me and you to open an active dialogue with these manifold inner beings, hearing what they have to say by lending our own voice so they can express their fears and hopes. Bridget eagerly and openly allowed me to share and lovingly provided practices to help me further along in my own holistic journey of self-healing and discovery. Her book really is a treasure and I plan to put what she shares into practice. My conversation with her has lingered in my mind for many days. I think I'm starting to see and understand the origins of these many Orans that are perhaps looking to be healed or lend a helping hand when this particular Oran needs it most. Because in truth, they are me. Now, it's time to take a look inside yourself. Ask the great question, who am I really? Then tune your attention to this good news beacon and press play on a little good news. It's morning, dreaming of the story I can hear The way it's going, cause you're laughing in your sleep On the path to your deliverance in a holy ball of light Old news, bad news, fake news Sometimes you want to shut those signals down and seek a better source. With my Find the Good News Beacon series, I tune into good people doing good works wherever I can find them. I scan across the full spectrum of life, seeking out human beings that have turned their dials towards helping others, aligning their time, resources, and talents with goodness, justice, mercy, and love. In each episode, I sync up with the hearts and minds of my extraordinary guests 
We have dynamic conversations that invigorate the mind long after our transmission has ended. I discover the critical life experiences that shape them, the perspectives that drive them, and the fundamental beliefs that have anchored them to a path of goodness. There's a lot of background noise in the world. My name is Oren Parker, and I'm cutting through the static to find the good. I love your show, by the way. I've been listening to it, and I love... Because it sounds like after the interview, you really curate how what you want to pull from it. Is that accurate? Because it sounds, I just love the show as a whole. Not just, oh, that's a really good interview, which it is. But it, I, I feel like each one is curated in a really lovely and distinct manner. You know, when we first started the show, it was all in person. You know, I, I did it in the studio and it was all around the table. But once COVID uh came to town, we had to shift gears. And so I started doing more phone call interviews. And I got to tell you, like, I really, I really love it. To be honest, I've met so many new people that I don't think I would have met otherwise. No, same here. You probably would have met me because actually my husband's family, both sides comes from New Orleans. Oh, wow. So they're right along the coast here. Well, they're in hurricane zone right now. I know they started evacuating or at emergency last night is my understanding or even yesterday yeah. during the day. I was watching it this morning. I don't know if it's evacuation. Well, I don't is, know. It looks like they're going to get some storm surge, but it, it, the good thing, at least from what I can tell, mm-hmm. is that it's not a monster storm, you know, it's going to downgrade super fast. It's just those outlier areas, you know, that are right there on the coast. I mean, I'm about, I'm 30 miles from the coast and that big yeah. one, uh, Laura just uh, wiped us out. I mean, I say wiped us out. I'm obviously sitting in my studio, but, uh, it, for a while there, things still aren't back to normal, you know? No. And they won't be, I would think for a couple of years, at least. Yeah. At I least mean, two then, years. Ah, this yeah. all happened during COVID. But yeah. I looked at the track of Laura, and it's like, whoa. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, it, it was yeah, you. Yeah, it like walked right over us. I mean, you couldn't have picked a more accurate line. And then, you know, Rita was 15 years ago, and it kind of did the same thing. But then we had Delta come right behind, you know, these homes. Mm. So, I mean, we're not in that same situation, but so many people's homes were already just on, you know, their knees. And then the second storm just came along, and... So I don't know what people are going to do. It's just uh, some folks are leaving, some are staying. I don't know, you know. But it is interesting, though, that you know somebody down here, so you get it. You're you're connected to it, you know. Yeah, I've been in storms in New Orleans that never had a name that there were deaths, you know. Yeah, and I'm sure right. you, too. Like Sure. Well, yeah, it's just tropical storms. I mean, you know, you're used to them. We talk about it. It's so sad, really, what you can get used to because – we were talking about how we we've gotten to the point where we're like, well, it's only a category one. Well, it's only a category <laughs> two. And we're like, what in the world? We never did this years ago. Years ago, it was like, Oh, any, any hurricane would have been something to leave for, but we've just gotten that way. You know, good point. Wow. <laughs> well, look, I, uh, wow. What a book. Okay. I gotta oh. tell you, I, I love your book. And for so many reasons, I love everybody brings their own stuff to any book that they read. And I could see my own stuff definitely as I was reading your book. You know, I would have to pause and my mind would meander all over the place because it's just a subject that is so personal to me is the the basic really core question of who am I? And man, your book gets yeah. into that so in a, such a unique way that really for me, I kept pausing to go, oh, this is like 
um, something else that I might be doing, but never really put my finger on it. You know, like what? I'm curious. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to get right into it. Uh, so yeah, this is, this was the interesting thing I noticed. So I, your book helped is helping me and I'm, I'm going to go back through it. You know, I was reading it with the intention of just, you know, it, talking to you, but you know, some of these books that I get put in front of me, I'm like, wow, no, this one's actually changing my life. It's something I can really, really use. It's not just a good book. It's something I can actually tangibly apply. I was, I was actually thinking this yesterday. I was like, I could actually use this as just a framework for keeping myself whole. Like it's a holistic type of healing is the way I looked at it with all these many aspects of yourself, especially the ones that I've uh, disregarded or tucked away. So I'll tell you what I thought. And, and this was just something that I thought that was like, oh, I'd never really considered this. But, you know, I, I kind of um, dabble in spirituality and religious studies and things of that nature. And one of the things that I've done is I keep a, um, I always keep like these decks or pictures of saints or photographs of people that I admire, like Thomas Merton, Gandhi, the Dalai Lama, Thich Han, Catholic saints, um, whoever. I have this whole little case of the, and I'll print up, even if it's just a, a picture of them off the internet, I'll, pick, I'll cut it out and stick it in this <laughs> little case. And so what I have done is I would, if there's an aspect of myself that I don't feel that I have... Uh, fully cultivated and I recognize that in someone else like one of these people I'll take that picture that picture out and I'll kind of carry it around with me throughout a certain amount of time maybe a week maybe a month but I think of that person and I'm like okay they represent this aspect of myself that is either diminished or I'm afraid to acknowledge and so I look to them as sort of an archetype a reminder that it's okay to embody that and as I was reading your book, I I kind of got a little echo of that in there. I was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I mean, not exactly the same thing, but it's in that sort of same realm. I think so. I think you're using it beautifully. The idea is that you're inducting these selves, these parts of you that are the light. And it's Marianne Williamson's famous saying that we're more we fear our light more than our dark often. And that's what I'm hearing. And we do, we need reminders of the bigger aspects of ourselves. And I think that's a beautiful example because in my book, I talk about inducting, cultivating parts of you that you choose to cultivate. Yes. So I think you naturally fell upon it. And I feel like my book operates on what we do naturally but like you said magnifies it so we're like oh we can actively do this like you said it kind of echoed in you oh i have this practice and when you read the book you put it together and that's i'm really happy to hear that because i i this book magnifies what we kind of do naturally and without purpose necessarily or goals and this is how to put it to direct goals yeah that was there was so much in there for me that i uh it made me think of even counseling i had when i was younger because i, I remember this one experience i went to counseling and uh, this really good counselor he had put his finger on something this was a couple of decades ago but he really put his finger on something that i wasn't even aware of but he, we were doing these visualizations and it, it was 
sort of like a damaged relationship with my father. Mm. But in that, these visualizations, there was always a, a little boy and he would always ask me, well, what does he look like? And I said, well, he looks like me. You know, he's me. I don't, I guess he's me because he looks like me, dresses like me, but he's like hiding off in the corner. And he was like, we need to acknowledge that little boy. And it was in that, that sense of, uh, there's a part of you that is hiding out that you have sort of tucked away to protect, you know, like a, um, so many things like that in your book that I just resonated with. There was one of your stories where the gentleman had, um, the fast food relationship with his father. And I was thinking about that and I was looking around my studio and I went, I have all the, I'm surrounded by toys and science fiction and I never really, I've always said, Oh, my dad liked that stuff. So I like it too. But I never really, till I read your book, I never sat and thought of this. I was like, you know, dad and I had, did have a, a difficult relationship, but when, when it, his way of showing me that he loved me yeah. was when was by buying me comic books and watching science fiction movies. You know, it was like he liked that. So he and we would get along in that space. Does it make sense? Oh, it totally makes sense. That's beautiful. Because the other thing is all different parts of us are come from our prior generations. Yeah. So it's and that's partly our connections. And then the parts of ourselves that we embrace, we think of, oh, the, this is me, we show the world, they're the parts that were allowed and reinforced. But then for all of those parts, we had to tuck away other parts. And there's nothing wrong with them, except they were not allowed in the original households. So those were our original opinions of those parts of ourselves, because they were scary. And maybe they were actually scary, like one should have respectful fear of their anger. But just like fire, fire makes delicious food, or as we see in the tragedies out West, it can do such damage. And if we don't have a direct relationship, say with our angry self, we fear that it's only going to be the, the, you know, the size of, um, a massive wildfire. But in fact, the paradox is if you have the courage to face these different parts of yourself, then you get the energies that you need and very healthfully move forward. Like for example, and I'd love if you did this I'd with me, like to. some gifts of anger. Like what are some gifts of your angry self? Yeah. So that's interesting too. I, I um, grew up in a household where there was a lot of love, but there was a lot of an, an under a riptide or an undertone of anger. And I, I've looked at that and I think I thought, well, that didn't come. That was something that was planted in my father, not by his choice either. He grew up in, in that environment. He, he didn't even know that he was that it translated over to him. And so I at some point it hit me that I just didn't want that part of me. Right. I didn't want my anger, but I do know it's there. And I I fight that part of me. Like, I don't even know there. That definitely is my tug of war. I, I go, well, I know I have these seeds of this anger. I see how hot they are, how, how they destroy things and how. But on the flip side, there are times when I go, man, I wish I could not be afraid of it so I could utilize it when it is necessary. And when would that be for you? Like, when would you wish you had access to the right size amount? Because that's the key here. What's the right size Yeah, amount? right. Like, one would be, I guess, upon reflection, would be whenever you, let's say, like, I have an older child who has, was, we don't know why, but was very toxic and destructive to our family. You know, I always have said, like, 
if we're all in a raft and you invite your whole family in, that one person in your family just stabs holes in it and you can't keep bringing them into the raft because you're sinking everybody else, you know, at some point. But I was so, I've always been so afraid of my anger that I wouldn't use it to protect everybody at the right time from that person. I wouldn't, and I don't know if anger is the right word, but I wouldn't just go, okay, enough is enough. I never, I kept moving my line of enough is enough because I was afraid that if I stood on that line, I would have to be angry. You were afraid of the confrontation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because I was like, I, I've seen what that is. I, I've seen the unhealthy side of anger, and I thought that lives in me. It's ugly. It's a monster, really, to be honest. And uh, I try to keep, I, I spend so much energy keeping that in at bay yeah. that I, it's like, even to open the door just to crack at things just waiting. Like, yeah, go ahead and open the door just to crack. I'm going to come out. Mm. Yeah. And just the way you even said it, I could feel the different energy coming in. It's much more like that's almost a cold energy. Like, go ahead, open the door. And then the hot energy would come out. And so in the process of different of learning what your different selves are, and it is terrifying, again, you have more control. I mean, one of the things that I'm hearing that is a gift of your anger, not that it's easy, is that it said, hey, we need boundaries. And you need to if you don't set them it's the raft will drown us all. So sometimes I like to say the message is full of wisdom. Like it sounds like it was accurate. You needed to set boundaries, but then maybe there's different parts of you to actually do the boundary setting, at least to start the negotiator, the diplomat, you know, so that's the other thing is sometimes the part of you that gives you the warning, like, Hey, this is coming down the pike and you may not want to look at it, but it's coming down the pike either way. Then a different part would actually have time to say, all right, let's, um, make a plan. Let's see if we can make this more palatable for the other person and, and at least try it that way because I love them. Not because I'm scared of them, because I choose to aim for the higher ethical purpose. And that's the other thing I like. Then you can align your actions to your higher ethics, your higher goals, at least to start. But if we didn't have access to our either, like, I don't know, that rough part that says no more people who have no access to that, then they become victims. And so some of the gift is that it's just literal protection and we need to have access to it. Not that we have to lead with it or always end up going back to like fire, um, storm size anger. Yeah, I get that. I totally do. That's something that is, uh, I, even, in, I mean, I'm 46 years old and I would say I probably started thinking about it on some level in my early twenties, very early twenties, 2021. And even over two decades later, that's still a version of myself that I tend to, uh, it's an Oren. It's funny that we talked that your book was, again, I told you I had a lot of thoughts about it. There was something when I, I first started, uh, seeing my wife many years ago before we got married. And I used to tell her, I said, you know, I go, I go to the beach and I talk to the Orans. And uh, she was like, what do you mean? I said, well, the Orans. And now that's not the same thing, wow. but it's similar. And in, the, in, the, in this regard, I, I've always been fascinated by science fiction and things like that. And one of my favorite topics was time travel. And I love movies about time travel. And I always thought it was fascinating how one little thing in these films 
could change in someone's life, and then you would get a whole other version of them. You know, George McFly from Back to the Future. You know, we have this sort of nerdy, uh, not competent guy, but then in, with this one change, now he's competent and he's successful, <laughs> and I, that fascinated me. I was like, God, that one thing shifted, but he's still George. He's just a different George, an aspect of George that would not have developed had he not had this experience. And so what I would do is go to the beach and kind of imagine uh, maybe there's an Oren that didn't ever get married and have kids. Well, what did he do? What did he what was his path and what did he cultivate? And I would sort of try to have these imagination exercises where I would almost get advice from him. Because we were the same person, right? But he would go, well, I didn't do what you did, but I get it because I'm you. So let me kind of give you a piece of me to use in your situation. That's marvelous. I mean, the 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 work that I do is called Voice Dialogue, which is part of the book. But this is exactly a form of voice dialogue because each of us, even the parts that are the unlived lives, so to speak, have wisdom for us. That is amazing. And, and, and then you have the wisdom. And so I just, I love that because we also have imagination and you're right. Everyone that's lucky can talk about sometimes that one person who said X or Y or gave the helping hand that literally changed the trajectory of someone's life. Well, I could say that that person activated those other parts made you believe in the healthy parts of yourself you're not doomed <sighs> you know you, there's a destiny not a fate yeah and and sometimes you just need that mirrored at you and it's like you went to nature because you did it at the beach right you're at the water yeah um and also i have a thought going back to the anger selves that's not in the book this is a wonderful exercise that i give to my clients which i'm giving to you but also for any of your listeners so the other thing about ourselves is they're physical all of them the way we know everything is physiologically even our brain is physical so also what i like what you're saying is that these different parts live in us physically energetically and the book helps people figure that out for themselves where do they live in the body so one of the things about anger and i think a lot of this uh, anger management, which has a lot of value, misses this crucial point. When especially you have that charge suddenly and you're enraged, it's an energy spark. And what do you do when that's happening? Because then a lot of people have skills for like two seconds later, but they can't last those two seconds to get to the that different part of the brain. So I say have something like a, a phone book, the old fashioned phone book. But now I see like real estate listings are often in these fancy paper, but very good paper and destroy it. Destroy that thing that has no value. And you got to have it in advance because when that energy hits, you tear that book apart. Some people do pillows. Frankly, I think pillows don't work, but if it works for you, great. But there's something about the fighting back about that book and the, the binding. So after you destroy the phone book, then you can, you, it's like you've, that energy expresses itself. And now you can say, okay, I don't want to destroy X or now is not the right time to talk to so-and-so that I'm so mad at. And then you've accessed different parts of yourself. Let me take a walk. Let me do whatever. Let me not burn down the house. But that is a, a such an, a, an amazing 
tool. And I just want to share it. You made me think of it. That is very good because I mean, there is, and I don't know how many people out there listening have that aspect of anger in themselves, but you know, I can tell you by watching my family's history, I can see it almost like to me, I've, I've almost like come to look at it as almost like an entity. Like it's almost like a, um, and I don't know, again, it's my imagination, but I go, there's this fiery entity that sort of says, oh, not only am I going to get angry, I'm going to burn everything to the ground. I'm going to wreck all the relationships and no one else is going to be happy too. You're all going to know. And we're going to just, it's going to echo forward through time, through the family, and it's just going to keep burning until everybody, a hundred years from now, is burned. And I just, I, that's the way I've like, it's really big. Like I go, that's a big fire. That's a big fire to be dealing with. Yes. So I've, you know, like you've, like we talked about, I've always been like, Hey, that part of me, I gotta be a fireman, you, you know, do. like I've got to have a, a to, to keep that part out. Cause I don't want to hand that off to my kids and my wife and future generations. I mean, at least on my branch of it, I don't want that. But paradoxically, if you deal with it directly, as opposed to just repressing it, then you will be cutting off that legacy. It will end with you. And one of the exercises to do, again, when it's super hot, you can't do it. But then you journal as that self. And I want to destroy 100 years from now. Bah, 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 bah. And you let it just say everything. And you know what? I'm going to curse. I'm going to curse with such elo- eloquence. My curse words are going to look like nothing besides the things that I like describe. Wow. I don't know if you know the medieval artist Bosch, B-O-S-C-H. He wrote, I don't. He did. Oh, look him up. He knew about rage. He, really? In the medieval times, he did a triptych, the Garden of Delights. And I have to viewers caution, like this is not for children, but just to know that I think some of this just is, it's in beings, it's animals have it, humans have it. But this artist took his rage out with his pen uh, and paints and all of that stuff. So the other thing is you can feed that part of you by being in conversation with it. Because then the other thing is it doesn't have to be as loud. If you're listening, it doesn't have to be burn the house down volume because it's trying to get your attention. There's something it needs you to know. It's in pain. It wants you to feel how much pain it's in. And so if you don't run away, but come at it with a healthy techniques like we're talking about, then you're actually role modeling proper ways for your family members to deal with it. And you can even help them. All right, let's take a walk. You know, you can throw rocks into the water and as that self, you know, but then it expresses itself and it doesn't have to destroy all the relationships. So I'm listening to you and it's like, I I almost see like another aspect of myself, another Oren in there. And he maybe is, I mean, it makes me wonder if, and I like this part of myself. I like him. He's the one I'd rather be. He's the one I'd rather have more of. And I, I wonder now, did that self arise as a result of that fire? Because it's the cultivator, the gardener, the nurturer. It's the one that says, oh, this needs to be planted and watered and nurtured. And, and you know, you talk in your book about cultivating the selves. There is a, a version of me that, that is very aware that, oh, this piece this is uh, a toxin. This this piece needs to be away from this other piece because 
it's going to rot it at the root. And I got to keep this one safe over here. Pass this one on. These are my seeds in a bag, so to speak, you know? Yeah. So the voice dialogue is the method that I use. And it's about our healthy personality. All of it is about healthy personality, having multiple selves. And then how it starts is also healthy is that in a household, a baby wants to bond and be loved and that's attachment and that's all good. And in a household, you, again, little ones learn, Oh, mom and dad like these parts, cheerful, fun, responsible, good student. There's all kinds. And then other parts are to be repressed. But two things, we don't have the um, ability to not pass along the parts we don't want to pass along. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? Yeah. So if we, it's sometimes hard to hear, as I say, sometimes the bits of wisdom are a little difficult, but then it's so much easier to deal with the truth. And, and some of our truths are not warm and fuzzy and like stuffed animals. Some of them are very harsh. You need to keep your distance and your healthy awareness. So then you're right. Those parts get repressed. And also in early households, many children see things they don't, and they say to themselves, I'm never going to be that way. And they're accurate. So they often learn to be amazing because of the hard experiences they've had. And the other thing is often they are true gifts to the family because they're the early parents, like they're the three-year-old parents, but they're going to suffer the consequences of that later. But one of the amazing things is often parentified children, they're called, are extraordinary because they've developed these extraordinary parts, the diplomat, the problem solver, the humor wrist uh, one, and, and those parts will never be lost. But now it's as an adult, when it's safe, it is important to touch base with those parts and those parts, like even you said, rotting to the core. Well, if they really rotted, it would be great because then they would just rot and then disappear, but they don't. And so again, I have many books, uh, exercises in this book, which helps people have a relationship with that part. And so you can, you can write about say the part, the, the part that I feel is rotting and then, or you can enter, move over a little bit and write as that rotting part. And I have a series of questions. You can ask that part, you know, what, what are your early memories? Where do you live in my body? What do you want from me? How can I help you? Hmm. Yeah. How can that be a helper? How, yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's something instead of trying to defeat it or crush it or bury it, that, that it's how can you heal? To be honest, like how can you offer it something like healing? It's interesting because this is such a timely conversation. This I didn't even make this connection when I was reading your book. But there's a Tibetan practice called Chor. I don't know if you've heard of this, but no, it's a meditation where, and I literally just discovered it two weeks ago, <laughs> and I didn't really make this connection till you just said that. But in that practice, it you meditate on basically the dark parts of yourself, right? The parts of yourself that you consider uh, toxins, like your sins, so to speak, your sinfulness. And I don't mean like to beat yourself up. I don't mean it in that way, but I mean like literally like um, hurtful parts, right? That that are hard on the world. And so what you do in, in, in the way this goes about it in that practice is you imagine all those parts of yourself as a ravenous beast and it looks different to everyone but it's sitting in front of you this beast and it's made up of all these aspects of yourself your worst nature 
and then you begin to imagine and it may seem gruesome but um you imagine starting at the top of your head to the tip of your toes you're feeding yourself your body to this beast and it actually in your imaginative meditation it consumes you and you're at, and so it seems the opposite right why would you want to feed the worst parts of yourself but what the practice is trying to get to as i understand it is you're trying to actually give that beast you're making a meal of your best parts to it to heal it and and, and you're not just satiating it you're actually showing it love by giving it yourself and i may be someone probably listen to this and say that there's a lot more to it than that but uh I found something fascinating about that. And what you're saying reminds me of that, I guess, in some degree. Yes. I think the like Western psychological world would call that integration. Mm, integration. Okay. And, um, and I think that is amazing. You're making me think of um, a, a, what I understand to be a Native American myth, which I love. So again, apologies if I'm misrepresenting that but basically there's this it's called the jumping mouse do you know about the jumping mouse hmm, no i don't know it's, tell it's me it's lovely um so uh i got it from the vision quest world um so basically jumping mouse is living in his village and he he jumps just as mice do and he's a high jumper and he sees on the top of one of his jumps like oh my gosh there's this whole world out there and he tells everyone jump, jump, I swear, like way beyond our field. I think I saw like a mountain. So that's the story of like this getting, getting this sight, this feeling that there's more for you. So basically jumping mouse, they told him that's not true. Just stick to your field, have a nice life. And he just couldn't. So he jumps and leaves the field and there's a whole adventure. And just like so many tales, which I loved, you know, a fish helps him cross the river and, uh, um, a bat helps him uh, find a safe place to sleep at night. And so he goes toward the mountain and ultimately he has, he, he, it's a vision. It's like the hero's journey. He goes through lots of trials and tribulations. One of them is he gets rich and successful. And so he stops mm. seeking. And so that's always, that was a wild one. And then eventually he gets restless again and he heads toward this mountain and he finally sees the mountain and he leaps up toward it. And just as he leaps, an eagle eats him. Oh, wow. And, and app and completely composes or, and so he's completely digested by this eagle. And then the end of the tale is jumping mouse sees from the eagle's eyes. Oh, wow. And he gets to see everything that he had dreamt of from years before, which he had a hint of at the top of his little jump. And that is what you're reminding me of with the Cho meditation. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. That that That's a beautiful way to pr think of that. And it's very holistic, too. I mean, it's integrating everything from the ground to the, to the heavens. You know, it's like the whole thing matters. No part of you is to be wasted. That's that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So your book, which I mean, we're I'm loving this conversation. I want to make sure people understand uh, about your book. What I and I guess that was the thing that I thought was really interesting is uh, that it is about the seven eighths and then the final eighth. You know, it's a, a lot of it. The really the main focus, I'm assuming, and I'm there's a lot in there, but is to help you accomplish things, right? To get finished with things. I mean, to set your goal and go, okay, what, yes. how are maybe there these selves within you that are 
can help you and then maybe some are holding you back and maybe uh, accessing them to get to that final eighth or get through it. Yeah. So it came out whole, this concept of the final eighth years ago when I was working with clients and these were talented, dedicated, hardworking people and they would get seven eighths of the way there and suddenly stall. And I myself Mm. have had this issue and same here. (laughs) Yes. And it was a mystery. So sometimes you know why you're doing it well. And, but especially when it's a mystery and I didn't understand it. And I knew that they really had worked hard because I'd been working with them for a year. So I knew they weren't somehow deluded in, in like their efforts. And then I realized, wow, seven eighths of the way there, they have all these parts of themselves that have permission to be a contender. And so the hardworking, responsible, all kinds of selves were great and, and did amazing things. So a few things, they would get stalled at the final eighth. And so it was painful. And the way I look at pain is pain can be your portal to transformation. If it wasn't painful, you wouldn't pay attention. So it's the pain. So you say, I'm sad for the pain, but thank you, pain. That makes you stop and listen. So a lot of my clients across the board, they could be in creative industries, lawyers, bankers, they would get so upset when it became clear that they could not rely on their elementary school style of rules and selves. Like, being polite was not necessarily going to help them cross that finish line or shy selves that were okay with doing lots of research needed to, the other selves needed to help somebody get their dissertation past the research stage and writing the actual paper and defending it. So a lot of times that's where the final eighth work is. And that's where it's curating parts of yourself that you need to, you cannot go further with the set of skills you have. That's one. And then the deep part is also, you may find out that there are parts of you that are still attached to core negative beliefs that you still are holding on to, that it's not safe to be successful. And when you listen to those parts, they all have wisdom. And so for one of my clients, it, it was, um, we, ex- we went to the resistor self. We, instead of running away, we're like, all right, resistor self, come sit down. We want to talk to you because you are running the show. That's the other thing. These selves, they're running the show. You're not getting things done. So you may as well put them on your calendar and then go and have a, and, and learn about this self. And it's never about how could you be less resistant, resistant self. It's more like, tell me more. Um, and again, I got a series of questions. Um, and so some of these exercises can be kind of fun in the sense of engaging. So one of my favorite questions, especially to selves, we don't love so much because they're problematic. So we feel, but they really are going to be the, the, your, where you find your answer. So I, sometimes I'll ask a resistant selves, what's your greatest success? Like how, how bad did you make it for Bridget? I might say like from the resistor's point of view, what was your best success? Oh my gosh, I got her to give up that goal for three years. I mean, when you look at it one way, it's really very sad, but it's also probably accurate. So this particular resistant self said to my client about my client, if she moves any further up in her field, which was a very social field, so it was going to require her to being out, this is pre-COVID, but still to be out networking. And this self said, and if she does that, 
she's going to have a drinking problem. She's going to, her, she's going to potentially become an alcoholic. Now I'd worked with her for a year and she was a hardworking client that had never come up. She wasn't in conscious denial, but it was unconscious denial. And when we went back to center, cause you always do, because you want to have access to all of yourselves. It's, it's not some type of magic. It's you just getting to know yourself better. She started weeping because that resistant self actually was saving her life. She, the resistant self was accurate. So our whole work became, how do you do boundaries? How do you do social events without over drinking? And neither of us thought that that was where our work was going to go. And then once that was under control, the, the, um, double bind melted, the, the, the tug of war shifted. And with those different set of skills that didn't occur to either of us, she was able to move to the next level. But between from that resistant self's point of view, it was, let me think, be higher, more of a success in your career or an alcoholic, and then you'll die early. Like from that resistance point of view, it had your back. There was no question. Skip the success. I don't need you to be an alcoholic. And then when you start to get a perspective that completely is upside down and also accurate, not easy. It is not easy to face a potential drinking issue. None of this is, I'm not, I don't want to make light that then it was all easy. No, we had to really dig deep. What could she do? And of course, every self has a history. What is the family history with substance use and dependence and, um, making it easier to socialize because she had some social anxiety selves So that's what I also love about the work is that you think, you know, stuff and you do, but the surprise and how quickly you get to it, that we were on it. That was the root of the issue. It wasn't easy, but we didn't waste time being what I call deflected by mirage goals. Mm. Listening to you tell that, I mean, I've got firecrackers going off off in my head right now because I, I literally just had a realization listening to you tell that story because there's something in it that is relevant to my life. I, I, I've, I've always resisted going out to network with people. And I know that that is required because I see other people do it and they're, they have more success in, in financial success. They have more in that realm. They have more rewards. What I'm watching happen in my mind is I'm looking at my judgments and I'm listening to you and I'm going, okay, why don't I, do that part of me has deemed that as frivolous and it's not but it has deemed it as such and i'm going well why and then i'm looking at my judgments and i see the other people who who are successful who do do that and i i watched i just watch what is it in my head and i here's the thought where are their children at well their children are at home who are their children with well they're probably with, especially if it's a man i'm like well they're at home with the mother well he's off doing this and she's home homemaking and i'm having these judgments in my mind roll around and i'm going well why do i have those judgments well because i've got an archetype in me an orin who has put being father at the top and everything below is less than that and i'm wondering well why is that well then i'm i'm reflecting now going well I had a troubled relationship with my father and he wasn't home, but mom stayed home and she worked and worked and worked and worked. And I watched her do without, right? Okay. So I put him and her in T I've set her as the victim 
And I've got in my mind, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that kind of man. I want to be, if I get married, I don't want my wife to have to cook and clean and do all these chores. And the may I go off to work and then she's home taking care of the kids and an abs. You see what I'm saying? So I've set, I, I can see this, this thing developed now as, oh, well, I've already made all these judgments and classified everything. Yeah. And so now it gets into the, the networking part. Well, I quickly sum that up as a part of me that goes, oh, well, that's, that's um, bad because the equation I've created in my mind means there's a, a wife at home who's just living in servitude and cooking and cleaning and taking care of the kids and the man's off networking and chumming and having drinks. And you see, a.k.a. fun. Right. And I have put one in a, one's bad, one's good. I'm not able to put them together. And as listening to that story, I can see something like that in me where I go, oh, that's why. Yeah, that's probably really, truly. It's not because I don't like people or networking, but there's like this sub program running. That's so um, insightful because the other thing that's highlighted in my book is the idea that you can get a contemporary definition of good fatherhood. Right. And it's no yeah. longer reactionary. I'm going to be this kind of father because I had this kind of father that I didn't like. And that's great. You you don't take you don't throw out that baby with the bathwater. However, now you can say, well wait, what's my what's my full definition of a father? Um and maybe you've set the household up so that your wife comes with you. In other words, it's more conscious choice. And then it's like, well, right. Uh, depending, of course, on the age of the child. But but then the idea is that you can make more conscious choices that resonate with what fits now. And I love what you just shared. And what's really astonishing, and people can't believe it, and so I really appreciate your show, sharing what unfolded for you, is how many of our core rules are these very primitive, uh, good, bad, and moralistic and we don't even know it. We're like, no, I'm, I'm, I believe people should do unto others, but I don't, I have, I'm more flexible. But then inside we have parts that are absolutely not flexible and this is good and this is bad. And right. the end. <laughs> right. it's true. I mean, I would love to, I mean, there's this archetype of me that I would love to cultivate more of. And I try, which is, I, I call him the, like the sage, you know, the one that is, wiser, kinder, more insightful. I want to be him, I think, but ultimately I know that he can't exist alone, right? I mean, all these others are around and I, I go and, and talking to you and, and listening and reading your book, I'm like, okay, I, I have these built-in equations that have created selves that are fighting for their place in the sun, so to speak. And uh, some of them, and that's in your book too, and I loved it. Some of them don't want what I want. Right. <laughs> it's competing agendas. Yeah. And the idea is you just have to know the competing agendas and then you do get to make like the CEO choice <laughs> or I like to think of the conductor of the orchestra. You get to say no piano, not right now. Yes, yeah. drums, let's go. But you have to know that you've got drums and pianos and maybe Tuvan throat singing in there. Yes. But, <laughs> but let's say you only do songs that you grew up with. And and then you realize, wow, there's all these amazing musics and songs and instruments. Let me see how I feel about them. And then you can make your own mind. Nope. I always like to say, make an educated rejection. Mm. 
then say, I checked it out. I don't like it. Great. But don't make a reactionary uh, rejection. Oh, no, I'm sure I don't like that. Oh, uh, music today. I'm like, music today? I hope I'm never so old that I say music today. I want to hear what the 12-year-olds are listening to. And then I can decide, oh, I like that. But one time I heard someone who was like 25 and I saying, oh, gosh, music today. I thought you are sealing off your curiosity at the age of 25. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's so sad to me because it's like, don't like anything you choose, but don't arbitrarily say because it's new. I'm not going to even see what's to enjoy. 12-year-olds aren't stupid. They probably have fabulous music if you opened your mind to it. Yeah, I, I, I see as in reading your book, I was reflecting on how many times, especially in my 20s, where I was testing the world almost in the way a child tests the world and uh, was making uh, making um, rules for myself and saying, oh, well, I would I'd like to I want to put this out here, see how people respond, not even really realizing it, but going just like a child does is like, hey, I'm going to show this part of myself. And then when you don't get a good response, you know, it's like, oh, well, that's not to be shared that that isn't re- getting good response in the world. And so this self sort of calluses up and gets tucked away. Yes. And under those calluses often are very painful things like shame, embarrassment. And so uh, the other thing about my book is I think it's it's a relationship you have with your vulnerability. And the and the paradox is the more you can be with your own vulnerability, the stronger you actually are. I'm even thinking about your sage self. If your sage self, which is sounds amazing, is only in the service of in a way being superior or somehow helping you not touch your vulnerability because the sage self says, no, I got this. But if you can have your sage self, but also be in touch with their vulnerability. So your sage self doesn't have to know everything. It's just, it's a sage and it's wise, but it doesn't have the burden of having to look perfect. Or if you were wrong, that doesn't mean you're not a sage. To me, the wise sages are wow, I learned so much. I didn't know about X and now I do. And I've shifted my opinion. I'd love to believe and become, continue to become more of a person that it has, I keep using the word holistic today, but someone that can plug things in and be okay with that and go, look, I, uh, I'm open enough. There's enough room in here to just plug that in, you know, and to, and I use the word dabble at the beginning of our conversation. It's okay to dabble every once in a while and test something within yourself and say, Hey, you know, maybe there are aspects of this that are okay. I'm keeping this at bay for some reason, uh, because maybe I've, I've prejudged it or I had maybe an early experience that wasn't great, but I, and I didn't give it a second look. I don't want to be that kind of person. I'd rather be able to, look deeper into things, you know, and and add them to instead of reject them. Yeah, I love how you put the work as a framework for staying whole. It's just I never thought of my work as a framework for staying whole. But I think you're that's a beautiful way to put it. I love that. Because the other thing is that there's always things happening like right now, COVID, social unrest. Yeah. And the idea is that you can stay whole and maybe you need to access different parts of yourself. And especially, I know you had the hurricane come through earlier, just what, three months ago or less? Yeah, like 45, 50 days ago. Oh my gosh, not even, uh, two months, right. So, um, So sometimes nature, as in hurricanes, viruses, literally demand you shift 
Like you don't have an option, but if you have the strength within to say, okay, I loved going to the office, but that's not a place I can be right now. And what other selves can I incorporate or get in touch with? And, and also have grief, like uh, let the parts of you that miss the office, miss the office. But I think this way of looking and at ourselves that we have all of these parts really helps us. And the other place is these developmental milestones like retirement. I don't know the, uh, statistic offhand, but those that don't have something to live for die much quick, more quickly after they retire than someone who's connected to something that could be considered a hobby or something that engages the person to feel useful and, um, and resonate with their essence. So that's the other thing is that as we are lucky enough to grow older with health, you just said dabbling. Maybe you dabbled your whole life, but now you can don't you can spend some real time checking out painting or raising puppies or whatever it is. So that's another thing is that depending where you are in your life cycle, sometimes dabbling is all you really correctly had the time for. You had to build a career and a family and that's all good. But then you can go, well, like, oh, what is that thing that I always dabbled with that I loved for the last kind of 40 years? Let me embody those parts of me and like take a course or uh, volunteer and learn more. So I also like to think of this journey as an exciting, uh, captivating invitation. So even though you're going to find out difficult things and it's it's a bit unnerving because I think I invite people to go into the unknown, it's an adventure and you get to meet golden aspects of yourself you didn't know you had like maybe you're optimist or you're visionary and so that's also the, it's fun in that larger sense of the word yeah i'm i'm hearing so much that's so relevant to my personal life right now you know uh i and this just kept coming up as I was listening to you. I was like, there is a version, there's a me in there, a self that is, I would call him just in a nutshell, the guilty me. And now it makes me want to sit and journal and really meditate on this guilty me more because I want to know why he's guilty and why is he living that way? I want to know why he carries so much guilt because I can quickly sort of sum up like all the things that I, on the top, on the, the top of it, what he feels guilty about. And I'm like, those aren't your fault though. I can, I can, I can sit here now and tell him those aren't your fault, obviously. But at the same time, I can't take his guilt away today in this moment. I need to have time with him and understand that. So we can, we, and it's interesting to talk about it this way. Like we, like he's not me, he is me, but that, so we can work through this together, you know, and it's going to, I'm going to do that because that's, that is a, a very, um, I can see him as um, carrying a great load, I, yeah, and he's affecting my life, right? And I don't need because I'll, I'll give you a quick example, and I don't want to get too far off in it, you know, mess up our conversation. But uh, you know, I was thinking about this this morning in in this way, and, and, and it's relevant. I, I've been walking and exercising more in the last couple of weeks because we lost, during the midst of all these hurricanes, we lost my father-in-law to a heart attack. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I mean, it adds a layer of despair on top of despair. And but he was fairly young. I mean, he's 65, 66 years old. But I, you know, I had also lost my father five years ago. So when I was 41, I lost my father. And now my wife, five years later, has lost her father. And so there's been this one thing, and it's such an odd thing. But the, when I lost my father, 
I was I had been uh, getting healthy. I had been taking care of my body. I was eating better. I was exercising regularly and I was feeling really, really good. And I was like, actually, I can remember my state of mind. I was like, man, I can I can feel good. I can be healthy if I if I take care of myself. And I was never really that way. But I was embracing that part of myself going, wow, such a simple thing. But I was understanding that it's okay to take care of yourself. Well, when my father got sick and passed away, I remember the day I got the call. I was actually at the pool swimming and going, wow, I used to couldn't swim two miles. Now I can swim two miles, you know, and I was having that thought when I got the call and then I I didn't go back the day. I just I was like, oh, gosh. And every I just stopped. I didn't. I quit running. I quit walking. I quit going to the gym. I quit swimming. I quit watching what I was eating. And so now here we are five years later, and I can definitely tell you I don't feel as good. I can see it in my physique. I, I mean, my my health isn't isn't horrible, but it's not as it was. But I looked at it when my father-in-law died, and I thought he had a heart attack. I'm like, okay, at 46, I need to retune the dial. And so his death has been a catalyst for me to re-embrace the health again, and I'm starting to feel better. And I know in time I'm going to have to get that feeling back, but it made me analyze the guilt. Like that five years, I've been carrying a guilt about being healthy because my father was sick. And I remember thinking like, he's so sick and I'm getting healthy. That's just so sad. And I felt guilty for it. And I've just been operating out of guilt to not take care of myself is ridiculous. Like in a way it's so ridiculous. It seems like I like what, but it's true. Well, I, in my book, I have two different stories that talk about the guilt that like beloved sons have for their dads that didn't do as well as them. And Mm -hmm. so that's part of the guilt. And also my guess is you were a parentified child. I could be wrong about that, but given what, what do you mean by that? I'm not familiar with you. In a, you were aware on some level, I don't mean consciously and could have articulated it as such, the, of your parents' emotional needs. Mm. And you, you, you rushed in to make them feel as good as they could. You, is that accurate? Yeah, for sure. I would probably say I, uh, yeah, I was... Yeah, I mean, I I bent to a certain age. I bent to try to be what what was needed at the time for whoever was in that room, and that was actually a detriment in my early adulthood. I was like, oh yeah, there was a part, and I'm no longer this way. I don't think it's probably still aspects. I was very much a people pleaser. I mean, I would just chameleon to whoever and whatever needs. I was like, oh, I'll be whatever to appease, you know. And you would reject yourself. You would leave yourself and whatever was of your essence in a second, kind of like how you described with your dad. Like, I don't. And and so there was no permission, which I'm hoping that now you will give yourself permission because you're aware of it to feel as good as you feel. So a lot of people think of success as, you know, the car and the house. And those certainly are signs of success. So they don't understand when they Uh, abandon themselves by leaving the physiological affluence of just feeling good, they don't get that that's also a type of abandoning yourself in a distorted loyalty that doesn't serve. Yes, God, that's a great word, distorted loyalty. Yes. So what happens is that the guilt and when you explore, you can keep this in mind, and it's also in the book when you and I really encourage you to do the journaling with your guilty self. Don't tell it not to be guilty. It's going to feel guilty, but listen to it. 
So parentified children, they are so attuned to what's going on and they can only help to their developmental best. So what it does is set themselves up for the Sisyphean task, which is, you know, that myth where the Sisyphus keeps pushing up the boulder. And just as he reaches to the top, he's doomed for the all of eternity for the, the boulder and for Sisyphus to fall back down. Yeah, gotcha. So what happens is that then uh, that's where sometimes the core negative belief comes in. You feel like you're not worth anything, that you are bad because you were not able to heal your parents. Now, it's Sisyphean in that you could never heal your parents because of your position in life. A child cannot make up for the deficits of their parents, but they love them and they want to. And what happens is then they interpret this inability as a reflection of their badness. And so then the guilt is, I failed my parents. But when you talk to this guilty part and you say, thank you so much for being so loving, but I'm going to take back, you didn't fail them. You were set up for the Sisyphean task and I love you. And you can grieve that. We want it. anything I would have given them for them to feel good. Mm, gosh, so interesting. I'm seeing so many parallels to other things I've thought about this because it almost developed what I've, I've kind of almost seen as like a very toxic type of empathy where I see empathy as a, a great attribute. I mean, something that I want to cultivate is a, a healthy empathy that can heal people and, and give them solace and comfort and walk them through their journey, too, in a healthy way. I want that. I want to be that type of empath. But what the visualization that's come to my mind in my type of empathy the most of my adult life has been – Look, I have these big wings and they're wide open. And if you come inside and let me wrap them around you, uh, you're going to feel better. But what I don't realize is I'm closing them around something like a porcupine with daggers on its back. And all that happens is I end up just embracing a lot of knives. And then I go, oh, no, this isn't what I wanted. And I'm pulling it into myself. And then I run away. Yes. Right. Because I'm hurt now and I go, oh, I got to run away and then I got to close my wings around myself and heal myself. And instead of it being healthy, it's like this sort of swinging pendulum of wide open, embracing, hurt, run away, keep your wings closed and retreat for a while. Yes. Right. Absolutely. So empathy that does not include you having access to your very impersonal boundary maker so that you are clear what's mine and what's yours. It's not easy. Because you yeah. can't feel their feelings for them. You can't drink their water for them. And yeah. I think as parentified children, you literally are like, I'll feel your grief for you. Yeah, and right. that's where it's toxic because it sets you up to fail because it cannot be done. But also then what happens is you go away and you use time and space. People say, where were you? You fell off the map. I haven't seen you for a month. It's because you had to heal your own wounds after you got stabbed by the porcupine quill. Mm -hmm. And then it's almost like your, your primary selves then pop up. They're all ready to go. You've taken care of that wound. And then you do the same thing all over again. Yeah. And then you use time and distance and people are like, and then you, it, again, it's like, well, I don't have the energy safe for the networking event. And it may really be because you were let someone in too close that really you didn't let them have their own process. One of my favorite nature things, 
interesting facts that have helped me that I love. So uh, it's one that's used often, but I never heard it quite like this. So the cocoon around the, the, what's going to be the butterfly. Do you know if you very carefully and really helpfully, you saw the cocoon start to move, which means the butterfly is starting to, is there and trying to come out and you're like, Oh, I'll help you butterfly. I'm going to take this little knife and I'm going to very carefully cut the cocoon and then you won't have so much trouble getting out. And then I'll open the cocoon and you can fly away. That's kind of what that's would be toxic empathy. Do you know what would happen if I did that? The butterfly would die. Why? Because it needs the struggle to have the muscles for life. Wow. Yeah. If you, if it doesn't struggle, it won't come out until it's ready to actually fly and get, and get away from predators. And so, in fact, the cocoon is protecting it by being hard. And so it's only going to be opened when the when the butterfly has the strength to open it. And so, in fact, even though it looks like it's in the way, it's helping it be stronger. And it's not letting predators in because it's still cocooning. So this butterfly has the safety of going to the gym, basically, and getting stronger. (laughs) But on some level, what you described with the empathy, you are wanting to get into the cocoon with the butterfly. Or you want to cut that cocoon to make life easier for the butterfly instead, instead of saying, I love you, butterfly. And no, I see that you have a butterfly within you, but you've got to do the butterfly work. I can't do it for you because you can't, not because you don't have willingness. It's so true. It's interesting because it makes me, I've, I've looked at behaviors, like things I did when I was a kid, young boy. So much happens when you're a child and I, I go, man, I really, these little moments that are indicative of exactly what we're talking about here. And my parents had, um, were go- when I was a younger child, I guess maybe 10 or 11 years old, maybe 12, I can't remember exactly, uh, they were separated and moving towards divorce. And I remember it being very painful and my mom being upset. Just It hurt her. like It was just so hurtful. But I remember she was angry, too. And so there was a day where she had taken all these pictures of her and my dad and mementos and stuff and like threw them in the garbage, you know. And I get it now. I look, she was angry, you know. And I remember going out to the garbage and taking those things out of the garbage and putting them in a separate two two garbage bags and I put them on the back of my bicycle and I drove down this country road and I hit them in the woods and I remember what I was thinking I was thinking about this a couple months ago I was like I was I knew that she was mad today and hurt today but there would probably come a day when she's not mad and she's going to want these things and she's going to have regret. And I remember hiding them. And then at, they, they ended up not getting divorced. I got back together and I, I went and got them and brought them home. And I see some of those pictures every once in a while in my mother's home, you know, like some of those mementos in, among things. And I'm like, wow, you know, I'm glad that we have those things, but it's that same type of empathy. I, but what the part of that, that I guess, uh, the self that emerged out of that was this almost that toxic empath because even though that seems like oh that's sweet I mean on the outside someone go oh what a sweet little boy it is but I can tell you what I wasn't doing and what wasn't happening and that was I wasn't acknowledging that I was actually getting in my mom's cocoon with her and I was hurting too and nobody ever nobody looks on that story and goes oh that little boy carried that hurt around with him then so I took her little porcupine and I carried that around and kept my wings around it and nobody really was aware. And so it just stayed there, you know? I like 
I like to say when I do teaching points, I'm going to pull it out of your story. So because I thank you for sharing that. It's so beautiful on so many levels. So what I'm going to say is not necessarily personal to you, but just like so. Right. The other thing about this very difficult family situation is there was no room for you to have your own feelings. And I understand her anger. And that was so beautiful that you again, you carried the the, the, the higher picture. But what if you wanted them? In other words, say the divorce had happened. She and it's okay to have anger, but it's like those were your pictures, too, because you were the father. And there was just no space that children are in deep grief over their parents, whether you get together or not back together. And that sounds really great. But but that rift is always going to be with you. And again, I like to say these are parts you never get rid of, but you get to hold that these parts have part of your story. They're not all of you, but they're going to be tender and they're always going to be tender, I say, and don't ask them not to be. However, I bet they help you have a better relationship. They're also helping you start to think about where does empathy end and toxic empathy start? And let me let me choose empathy because my Gosh, what a gift and how gorgeous on so many levels what you shared. But also, yeah, this lonely little boy who had no place to put his own anger, sadness. Yeah. Terror. I mean, it's terrifying, too. Sure. And he's tucked away. He's like a self, just as your book describes. I mean, he's tucked away in there. And when I think of those stories like that, I go, oh, and I, I do. I kind of see him as separate, but I do realize he's not separate. He is in there. Uh yeah, I'm again, I I love your book. I'm going to sit and journal about it. I really was thinking that I haven't done that yet, but I'm 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 going to use it as a journaling exercise and really start digging because I can see very clearly even just talking to you new things are coming up. So this subject and the way you've laid it out, I think is such a uh it's a it's a blessing and a benefit. I think it will be to a lot of people. I mean, and really, and it's it's not a hard read either. I mean, you can sit and read that book in a couple of days and then go back and read it again from a um i think from a more meticulous exercise point of view that would be the way that's the way i'm going to do it you know i've had a one i've had one read but now i want to go back and like okay read it with a with the intention of stopping when i get to a point where i'm like okay now I've, i have something i need to write about i want to dig into this and scratch deeper oh i'm so glad also in terms of parents if they read this book it could be something to give directly to their say teenagers oh yeah but but you could say to your angry teenager or your just emotionally activated teenager, whatever gender and or that liquid or otherwise, but um, say, all right, well, why don't you go journal as that self so that you help your own kids have healthy relationships with parts of themselves that are even difficult. And then you as a parent can say, wow, this um acting out teenager is really infuriating me right now. But how, what about my acting out teenager? And it just helps there be more space. And again, I never, 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 never accept unacceptable behavior, regardless of which way it's coming. So I'm never pro accepting unacceptable behavior. However, having more compassion to how it feels like to say, have a high energy that you just can't control. A lot of times, even with acting out teenagers, they really don't want to be doing what they're doing, but they feel out of control and they are, they're accurate. So some of these exercises could be um, used in that way. Like just say, Hey, here's, here's a, a phone book. 
go in your room and not because I, I, because I want to help you, not because I'm mad at you and tear that thing apart. Just don't break anything. You know, that's the other thing. It's not destructive to what's important and valuable around you. So you just made me think of that. And so that also then teenagers early on learn that they can accept these parts of themselves because they're by developmental phase supposed to be trying on different selves. Like if they're not, they're not in a way kind of where they should be. Yeah, especially in those, right, those are those formative years. I mean, all, all years are formative years, I suppose, but uh, especially those early years. I mean, I know for me, at least, I that's how I, I still can, draw. obviously, even you can see that in this conversation, I can go way back and go, oh, this is an early thing, and it's still relevant in framing my reality, you know? And and you can say it's not. You can go, oh, that's just a story. I mean, so many so many of us do that. We go, yeah, the X happened when I was a kid, and we move on. But man, those things have, um, I don't know, they have rings around them for sure. Yeah, yeah. Happy, I know Hello, good news listeners and friends. It's time for the fishing for goodies segment of Find the Good News, where I take a back seat and let the questions from the good news fishbowl take over the interviewer role. If you're a longtime listener, then you know that normally there was an ad right here for the Brimstone Museum and Henning Cultural Center in Sulphur, Louisiana, my hometown, and the place where I produce Find the Good News. Thanks to the devastation caused by Hurricane Laura, instead of an ad, I'm making an appeal. Hurricane Laura, the strongest hurricane to hit Louisiana in over 150 years, made landfall on the crossover hours between Wednesday, August 26th, and Thursday, August 27th. This monster storm made a straight path from my hometown, Sulphur, and her sister city, Lake Charles, Louisiana. I evacuated that Wednesday evening ahead of the storm and returned the Friday after, and one of the most heartbreaking things I saw was the devastation of our historic treasure, the Brimstone Museum. Trying to describe the scale of the damage to southwest Louisiana escapes words. Every resource imaginable was brought to its knees. Utilities, water, gas, food, shelter, and medical. Life instantly returned to a cycle of shoring up supplies to survive the coming heat, humidity, stabilization, and recovery. While national news media has moved on, the multi-layered human suffering remains, especially for our poorer communities made even more vulnerable in the aftermath of this savage storm. The road to recovery will be long, and many of the decisions and actions of our national, regional, and local politicians could be put under well-deserved scrutiny at this time. But what can't be criticized is the goodwill, mercy, compassion, tenderness, and drive to help that we've seen from local and regional volunteers. Each day they bring hot food, water, cleaning supplies, tarps, gasoline, and set up every single day in parking lots serving from sunrise to dusk. One particular organization, Care Help of Sulphur, mobilized immediately. Volunteers selflessly putting their own needs aside to care for the citizens of Sulphur with all of their varied needs. I've put a link to the website of Care Help of Sulphur on my website, as well as some reflections and links photos, and video about what we are facing right here in Sulphur, Louisiana, the home of Find the Good News. You can find that at findthegood.news slash donate. That's findthegood.news slash donate. The link is also in this episode's show notes. In fact, 
This episode was produced on power, provided by the loving gifts and efforts of this podcast guests and listeners. Any help offered to Care Help of Sulphur or find the good news in the aftermath of Hurricane Laura is deeply appreciated. Brimstone Museum will be saved and hold this spot once again, someday. Care Help will continue to serve the people of this city. Good people will always rise up to do good works when there is a need. Now, Let's take that dive in the fishbowl. You said you listened to the podcast. I don't know if you got to the end of them, but uh, we have this fishbowl <laughs> that has a bunch of mystery questions in there. And there are a lot of questions. And so you never know what's going to come out. But there are 400, over 400 questions in wow, here. Wow, I'm so, ready. Are you ready? Like, okay. Do you take, do you take question um ideas from your listeners i do yeah you, some, how'd you get 400 some of those okay. are in here too yeah there's a, a bunch of slips of they're like little fortune cookies in fact let's do the listener ones that'll be the ones uh let's just do listener questions all right <laughs> oh well this is interesting sort of out of left field but what is legal that you think should be illegal mm, what is legal that should That's an interesting be question it's usually the other way around. People want to know like what's it, what, what's illegal, but it's kind of flip flopped. Yeah, I love this. What is legal that should be illegal? Um, I know I'm having a hard time with that one too. Wow, I'm stumped at the outset. I'm well. I'm sort of thinking, given our conversation, um, I'm 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 squelching my actual answer. So here's my actual answer because it may not be pretty, but so it goes. Is that okay? Yeah, let's do it. Um, the actual answer, and it doesn't have to be reality based. I would say uh, what should be illegal that is legal is emotional abuse. Oh, interesting. Okay, can you explain? Well, it's not illegal. Um, it's physical assaults illegal. You know, there's all kinds of literal illegalities in terms of abuse and thank goodness. And I don't know technically how you could even quantify it. So I'm not thinking I'm not answering as a lawyer, but emotional abuse is not illegal. There's nothing you um, you can't pull someone from a house for emotional abuse. God, that's so true. I guess I never really thought of that that way. But you're right. And it has longer, I would almost say, more insidious seeds it that it plants. It and it, the studies have shown that to be true. Man, that's a good answer. Well, I'm glad you. I'm glad I asked that question because that really is something that you can't see. Right. You know, you but can it see stays. it sometimes when you meet somebody and they have a certain behavior. Um, like, I mean, you you can see where somebody when they're responding with a lot of apologies or um, a meager appearance, or they're always taken like the lower. You know, I could see. I do. I have those thoughts. I go, were they hurt? Were they broken eye contact? Where it broken shifts. eye contact. Yeah. Yeah. Where they interesting. Keep, um, a, uh, a passive and or submissive, or at least it's at the ready, uh, the body language of passive and submissive. Yeah. Sort of like the self hugging or the gripping of the sleeves. Of you see things mm -hmm. like that. And I, yeah. I, I'm not a very, I don't, I definitely give people their space. I don't like touch people or uh, uninvited or anything like that. But, um, you know, there are people that you can tell, like they're carrying themselves in such a way that they're just like, I don't, don't come into my energy. Don't come into my circle. I've been hurt somehow, whether physically or emotionally. Yeah, that's true. Gosh, I, good answer. Very good answer. That's going to give me something to think about. 
Uh, okay, so let me put on my glasses for this one. They wrote this one a little small. Um, oh, this is interesting. What do you do when you get nervous? Uh, besides <laughs> Twitch? <laughs> um which I do, I, I'm a very physical person. So my nervousness is often oh, like wow. I literally can feel the energy. So what do I do um, when I'm nervous? I literally tr- induct other parts of myself depending on what I want to do. So for example, two things. Um, if I'm, if I am going to be nervous, like uh, say being on a podcast, one of the things I do is prepare you, so that I help my nervousness by being prepared in a way where I will feel more confident. And then I, this is an actor exercise. You think of uh, a, someone famous or a star that you admire ah. and you think you do it as them. So you embody their energy. So I might do Lily Tomlin who I love. So if I'm feeling really nervous, but I need to, it's like, well, I can be Lily Tomlin. She's funny. She's smart. She's a good listener. I think is any of this accurate. It doesn't matter. It's how I feel about it. It's my inner Lily Tomlin. So that's another thing I do. You think of someone, the rock. I love the rock. Yeah. <laughs> so I might even do the rock because it doesn't, you can pick people. That's not your gender. So if I really need to be lovable, but, um, thick and full, <laughs> I'm going to be the rock and I don't have to tell anyone, but I can feel my whole body calming down because I just saw like he tweeted that he just got injured at the gym today so that he's got this big bloody gash on his face. And even then he looks like he can handle it. Uh, Yeah. So but if I'm suddenly nervous, like, I don't know, something comes out of the blue, like uh, um, like say driving a car and someone suddenly cuts you off that you didn't see. You just I you you go for damage control and you just take care of the situation. So that's my very long answer. Sorry. <laughs> no, I like that. That's very good. You know, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about. It makes me think of some of uh, the archetypes, you know, like um, a historic figure that you can like draw upon and go, OK, I'm going to em- yes. embrace their spirit right now, you know, and call them to me uh, from this line of ancestors, you know, yeah, and draw them forth and yeah. go, OK, help me right now. Be in me sort of, you know, to get me through this. Yeah, I like that. I love that, actually. So this is going to be an interesting answer, I'm sure. It says, how does your upbringing shape you? <laughs> Great questions, which exactly. Uh, the, <laughs> Where do how, I start? <laughs> how does my personal upbringing shape me? In many different ways, I think uh, I have a lot of empathy, like you, Oren, um, and I think and um, creativity in the sense that uh, I did grow, my father was an actor. So we did grow up around doing plays and embodying different characters. And one of my favorite things to do was read the lines and it's called cueing him. So I would read the other characters lines. So to see so, as he memorized his, so I had a lot of fun in that department playing the different characters. And so I think naturally I always knew there were a million perspectives to any one given moment because a play has different characters. So if I'm playing the mean one, then I'm playing the nice one because my father is the X character. He's only going to say his lines. And then that's just applied to life. And I always said in high school, I'm either going to be an actress or a therapist. And I ended up being both. And I think it's because I always loved story. I was always curious, then what's going to happen? And I think both embody 
story. And in terms of what I do now as an author and a coach is I help people shift their narrative. Like which parts of you do you want to lead now? And so, uh, that's how I would say right now, that's how my childhood experiences are playing out today. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that's a good way to look at it too, because you, you know, childhood's so expansive, but to think of one thing and go, oh, let me, let me think of this one thing that I can still look at and see as clearly definitive. And I mean, we all have those things, right? I mean, sometimes we don't learn, we don't even really discover those till later upon reflection. Like even in this conversation today with you, it's been very reflective for me. I mean, listening to you talk, it's jarring loose things that, uh, I think it was, you know, the launch pad of your book and then actually getting to have a, uh, a sit down with you like this. It's been a real, a real positive thing for me. I mean, I get a lot of books that come through, but they're, they're, they've all been good, but there's always those ones that you go, no, I need to, this one's something I can do. I can really sink my teeth in. This one got doors just cracking open for me. So I'm so, so glad to hear that. That was my hope and to spread it out wide, you know, in a book then people around the globe can read it. Yeah, exactly. So I have one last question. It's the, I ask everybody at the end of the show, um, did anything good happen today? The sun came out. That's always lovely. And um, yeah, without going too much into the details, my husband and I, who we've been together a long time, actually had a really um, a nice exchange about a very deep, topic where we learned something about each other and we've been together decades that we didn't know and it's just nice wow what a treasure yeah that's exciting actually because you're right i mean when you're with somebody there's you know there's always that fear that you're gonna go well we know everything you know we've already done it all you know yeah that's actually pretty cool to even after a couple of decades to go oh my gosh i did not know this yeah so thank you for highlighting it because it happened but i had not stopped to see how special that was. So I really appreciate the question because it, it didn't lodge into its rightful place in oh, my heart till you asked fantastic. that question. You know, that's the, that's the magic question at the end of the show. And it, it's a good, it's simple, but it reframes our thinking just by adding the word, did anything good happen? Cause we can, how was your day is what we, or how are you is mostly what we ask people. And it's sort of an umbrella with a lot of space, but when you just say, Hey, let's go just in the good category. Sometimes beautiful things come out. Okay, guys. So th- the book is The Final Eighth by Bridget Gaspard. I, you obviously can tell by our conversation that I love the book. It's useful. You don't have to be any type of person. You don't have to do something special for a living. You don't have to be married, single, with kids or without or any age. I mean, this is something you can pick up. And as she said, you can uh, give it to even your uh your teenage children even, and let them start working on their selves or building relationships with them to help them get through that final eighth. Thank you so much, Bridget, for spending time with me today. Oh, thanks, Oren. It's been just magical, really. Thank you. I'm more thankful every moment that I found. Thanks for listening to my Beacon Series conversation with Bridget Dingle Gaspard. If you'd like to experience Bridget's book, The Final Eighth, make sure to visit the links in the show notes. If you found something of use in this conversation, consider visiting findthegood.news donate, where you can help this good news mission and organizations working to help in the historic aftermath of Louisiana's 2020 hurricane season. 
I thank you for pressing play and for syncing up with this good news beacon.